Hey, good morning. If you would, grab your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, if you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, if you're new here, we like to stand out of reverence for God's holy and inerrant Word. Uh, if you're able, please stand, open up your Bibles. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, it's a bittersweet season for me because we just have a few more Sundays left in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we will launch a new sermon series uh, starting in January. Uh, we'll start a new sermon series January 21st, the same time that Alpha starts, and so does small groups. So uh, this morning, we're into one of the last sections of the book of Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of these blue hardback Bibles. They're all throughout the room. Uh, I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. My words will pass away, but the words of the Lord never pass away. Uh, let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 18 through 29, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us this Christmas Eve. Uh, he's going to talk about Mount Sinai, and then he's going to go somewhere else. So if you can imagine uh, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, that's going to explain what's happening in these first few verses. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warmed them, warmed them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray? Uh, Father, we come before you in reverence and awe, thankful with grateful hearts. Uh, Father, we ask that you would give us an understanding into your word and that the story that you are telling would reshape everything about our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, this morning I want to just suggest to you not to underestimate the power of stories. Uh, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that most of our lives are actually shaped really fundamentally by the stories that we tell ourselves, right? So you could imagine if a child uh, is never told that they're loved or if a, a parent or a mentor tells a child something really painful, you know, uh, as a, at an early age, how that might shape the child's life forever, right? And of course, the opposite is true, right? If you, uh, for instance, were ever to adopt a child and say, I chose you, you are always loved, 
Do you think that story of adoption and love might shape the way the child sees herself for the rest of her life? Uh, Friends, what I want to suggest to you is that stories have this incredible way to reorient our lives in ways that are really hard to understand. Uh, You know, um, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was this guy who escaped from the Soviet Union several years ago. And uh, in telling his story about uh, escaping the Soviet takeover of his country, uh, he, he reminded us uh, of that famous Soviet joke, maybe you've heard about it, uh, but you know when the, the communists took over Russia, uh, they didn't try to recast the future alone. Uh, you know what they did? They tried to retell the stories of the people. Uh, so uh, Solzhenitsyn tells this joke, it goes like this, many people said it in Russia. They said, the future is certain, it's the past that's unpredictable. And what he was pointing out is that one of the ways that you can change a society is actually not just to recast a vision for the future, it's to do what? To change the stories, the meaning of the stories. Because if you change the story, you reshape a way a society sees itself. Or, again, if you look just individually, if someone retells a story about something that's very formative for you, it can be very upsetting. Well, the reason I mention all of this is because You've got to understand the power of stories if you're going to understand this section of Hebrews. If you look down, uh, verses 18 through 21, he's basically retelling a story about God giving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. But he's using very poetic language. But that was a story, a formative story that all of the audience of Hebrews would have understood. That was a story that shaped how they saw themselves and how they saw God. But what's amazing about this passage is the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians, and he's telling us not just that we are shaped by the story of the Old Covenant and of the Old Testament and of God coming down on Mount Sinai and giving us the Ten Commandments. That's not the only story that shapes you and I. You and I are also profoundly shaped by a story from the past, and that is when you and I become Christians, we come to the spiritual mountain. Mount Zion, and that story of Christ saving his people, and you and I being brought somehow into the spiritual realm where God's spirit and our spirit are somehow linked in ways that we can't even fathom, that story of redemption should fundamentally change how you see yourself and how you see the world around you. If you can believe me that stories shape everything about life, friends, and you can understand this passage because these are stories that fundamentally reorient every Christian. These are our stories. And they're meant to tell us about ourselves and about the Lord. And the beautiful thing is these stories are true. So look down with me. Let's look at this first story. Really, all this passage does is it talks about a first mountain, then a second mountain, and then he tells us what to do about it. Okay, so if halfway through this sermon you're thinking, okay, I don't know what to do with this sermon. I don't know how to respond. Just wait until the end. And then he will tell you and I how to respond to these stories and how these stories are supposed to reorient our lives. Look down at verses 18 through 21. So this is one big section, right? This is one thought. Uh, The author of Hebrews tells us, uh, he's saying this to Christians. He's saying, you have not come to what may be touched. 
Now, what he means by that first little phrase right there is he's going to tell us about the story in Exodus. Uh, these people who received this letter, they did not live to see this. This was a long time ago. And so when he says, you have not come to Mount Sinai, what he means is you didn't live to see it. You and I were not there when God came down with lightning and thunder and fire, and he came down on Mount Sinai, and he said, whoever touches this mountain will be stoned, and if anyone comes with the mountain, they're going to die. Right? It was an incredible display of the holiness of God. And then Moses responds to God, right? He's the representative of God's people. And Moses ascends the mountain. But when God responds to Moses, God's voice is like thunder. <laughs> and that may not sound very intimidating to you right now as we sit in a beautiful chapel on Sunday morning. But uh, has anyone ever been caught outside in a thunderstorm or been around where lightning has struck? I'll never forget, you know, when I was about 16, I was sleeping, I was taking a nap one afternoon and lightning struck a tree in our front yard. And I immediately thought, the terrorists are here. They've come for me, you know. I don't know why that's where my mind went, but it was an incredible explosion hearing a tree just explode and seeing the line that the lightning burst through it. You and I may not think this is a terrifying thought, but if you've ever been around truly deafening thunder and been near lightning, just think about how exposed and fearful you would be. Well, that's sort of the image that the author of Hebrews wants you to see, right? If you can use your mind's eye and try to imagine seeing God descend down in the cloud and the gloom and the darkness, and then when God speaks, it's like deafening thunder. <laughs> Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, right? Mount Sinai is a real mountain, but you weren't there when this happened. It was a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, you know, this big storm and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, right? Um, you know, there's a, a famous uh, movie director, Christopher Nolan, and he always has these like huge sound effects in his movies like, have you ever heard that scene of those movies? Um, you know, I remember trying to show my girls one time the movie Black Beauty, you know, have you seen that? So it's got this terrifying opening scene of a horse on a boat that's exploding and it has this deafening and I sometimes make that sound to terrify my girls and they still are like, Dad, shut up. That's so scary. The reason I mention that is because you have to use your mind's eye. Use your imagination a little bit. Imagine just a trumpet blast that will not stop and it's splitting your eardrums and there's this giant storm on a mountain they begged that God would stop speaking because they couldn't bear. It was overwhelming. That's what they mean. It was so terrifying. Look at verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Look at verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight on Mount Sinai when God came down that even Moses himself said what? I'm trembling with fear. <laughs> so what is the point of this story? Well, why does he tell you and I uh, about the law coming down on Mount Sinai? What's his point? Uh, well, what he's trying to help you and I see is that the stories that shape us fundamentally, the ultimate story is not just that God descended on Mount Sinai and gave us the law. What he's going to say is that for Christians, the fundamental story that reorients everything in our life is that we have been hid with Christ on high that somehow you, Christian, and Christ are linked like this forever. On some level, you have been raised with Christ. 
on some spiritual level that you and I can't comprehend, you and I are citizens of Zion. We have come to Jesus already. We have access to God. We have come to God the judge, and we have come to Jesus. And Jesus' sprinkled blood washes us clean. But what's amazing about this uh, you know, first half of Hebrews chapter 12 where he's talking about Sinai, he's trying to impress on our hearts and our minds that the God that you and I serve is holy and he is righteous and he is full of justice. And really, that's why I think he mentions this is he's saying, Christian, don't forget how holy God is. Uh, now, of course, you know, if you're new to church and you haven't been here in a while, uh, you know, we like to use a lot of words that don't always make sense to you. You know, we talk about things like repentance and, you know, sanctification, or we may talk about holiness. But a lot of times I think we don't really know what we mean by those words. Uh, so when we say that, you know, what he's trying to imprint in our minds by reminding us of Mount Sinai, what he's trying to shape our hearts to see is the holiness of God. That's, the, that's what he's trying to impress in your mind. The God that you and I serve is holy. And there should be a sense that it should give a sense of um, awe out of us, right? That should be part of the response that you and I have about God, is that we should be in awe of God. We should revere him. Uh, in fact, this passage reminds us that the God that you and I serve is a consuming fire, and he will consume his adversaries on the last day. The God that the Bible presents really does send people to heaven or hell. And that should shake you a little bit. It should remind you that our God is holy, holy, holy. We are not holy. <laughs> but what does holiness mean? Uh, well, if you read R.C. Sproul's great book, The Holiness of God, uh, it's the best thing Sproul ever wrote, uh, I think. Uh, he draws sort of our attention to what it means to believe in the holiness of God. And this is such a profound idea. Uh, he says the word holy calls our attention to not like a character trait of God. Holy is not like a list of things that God is. It calls attention to all that God is. Holiness reminds us that God's love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. And his spirit is holy spirit. Holiness is not merely purity or cleanness. It's also transcendence. It's this thing that we can't comprehend. It's the, the attribute of God that goes beyond anything that we could imagine. Yes, God is love, but he's holy love. It's the kind of love I can't comprehend. It transcends my understanding. God's mercy is not like my mercy. It's holy mercy. His justice is not like my justice. It's holy justice. And if that really burrows its way into your heart, what happens, friends, is you want to cry, holy, holy, holy. God is greater than I could imagine. I thought I knew God and still and yet all of my thoughts of God have been too small and too few. God is holy. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to remind you and I of, right? But the tendency of our human heart is to treat God casually, to treat faith casually. Uh, the tendency for, or the temptation for the people 
that this letter was originally written to was to sort of drift away from the faith. But what does the author of Hebrews want you to see? Even Moses trembled before God. What are we supposed to see from the second mountain? If the first part is to remind you and I of the holiness of God, the this, is like, this is the whole turn of Christianity, right? This is what makes Christianity eternally fascinating, right? Because on one hand, we adamantly proclaim that God is holy and God is just. And at the same time, right, at the same time, in the same breath, we also say, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can boldly approach that God. And yes, I tremble, but also at the same time, I'm not afraid because perfect love casts out all fear. And that beautiful dichotomy is what makes Christianity so profound. See, um, one guy put it this way, Christianity humbles you and I in ways that we actually really need. <laughs> it humbles us. God's holiness humbles us. But yet his holy love raises us to heights that we never thought possible. You know, the image that I often think of when I think about the holiness of God is I think about the Israelites passing through the Red Sea, right? There's these huge waters on either side that could totally take them out, <laughs> right? And yet they walked on dry ground. There was access. The holiness of God, but then it's followed up by this incredible promise, Christian, that you can approach God that God wants you to be near him. Look at verse 22. Now he's going to say there's a second mountain. The first mountain is Mount Sinai. This second mountain, so to speak, is Mount Zion. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 22. But you, Christian, by faith in Jesus, on some spiritual level that we can't totally understand, you have already come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's walk through that for just a second. If you, uh, you know, if you wanted to go home and really dive into this passage, uh, what you might notice is that when he's describing Mount Sinai, he gives up seven descriptions of what that was like, right? It was something that could not be touched. It was a blazing fire, darkness, so on. He gives us a list of seven things about Mount Sinai. And here in the second half, guess how many things he's going to use to describe Mount Zion? Seven. There's a list of seven things. So you could even take this passage and write it down more of like a poem than a paragraph. But what does he mean by this? Christian, you have come to Mount Zion. Well, Zion was a hill in Jerusalem where the temple was built. But a lot of times when the Bible talks about Zion, it means the spiritual reality, the spiritual mountain, right, where heaven and earth meet. It's the spiritual capital, you might say. Right? And Mount Zion, if you read you know, Psalms like Psalm 89, uh, even Psalm 89 in the Old Testament talks about how one day people from all of the nations will claim to be citizens of Zion. Right? So Zion is the city of God. It's what Jerusalem was always pointing towards, a spiritual reality where people from every nation, language, and tribe could have access to God. 
Uh, this is why so many African-American churches in the South are called what? Mount Zion Missionary Baptist. <laughs> why do you think it'd be important for African-Americans in the South to remember that they're also citizens of Zion? I'll let you chew on that. Verse 22, Christian, the people of God from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue, you have access to God. You are citizens of Zion. You've come to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Just as Zion was pointing towards something spiritual, so is the city of Jerusalem pointing us to the heavenly Jerusalem. And somehow in ways that you and I can't understand, the line between this world and the eternal is thin when you and I come to faith. So in some sense, we are a part of what's going on in heaven that we can't understand. But listen to what he says. We've come to Mount Zion. And how is heaven depicted? Heaven is depicted as having innumerable angels, right? Can you imagine angels? Too many angels to count in festal gathering. Festal word means festival, right? Think about all the festivals in the Old Testament. They are celebrating and they are worshiping God at this very moment. Uh, if you study church history from the beginning of the Christian church, they have always understood that what they do on Sunday mornings is actually joining what's happening in heaven. Heaven and earth are meeting when you and I gather for worship. That's why we sing the doxology. Praise him above ye heavenly host. We are joining the chorus of heaven in our worship. And spiritually Christian, you and I are joining Mount Zion in some way that's too hard to really understand. I think this is why he gets poetic as he talks about it. Words fail. And he goes on in verse 23 and he says, we are coming to, we are a part of the assembly of the firstborn. Uh, another way you could translate that word assembly, anybody know? It's ecclesia in Greek. Another term for the assembly is the church. That's what the church means. It means the assembly. So he says, you've come to the church of the firstborn who are already in heaven. And we've come to God, the judge of all. Isn't that interesting that he wants you to remember that God is judge? How often do you think of God as judge? Right? There's that sense of reverence and awe that you and I are supposed to have, Christian. And we have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I think the spirits of the righteous made perfect are all the saints in the Old Testament that are now enjoying the beauty and the glory of heaven. And of course, Christian, in some sense, you and I have come to Jesus. That's what faith is. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and through faith in him. And so, yes, God is holy and he is righteous, and yet we can approach him. You know, the late Tim Keller used to love to say that the kind of access we have to God is like that of a little child who goes into the king's bedroom in the middle of the night and asks for a cup of water. And only a child of the king would have the audacity to ask the king for that. And Christian, you and I are the children of God. We can approach the king of kings, and he wants us to. You know what that should be sparking in you? Some sense of, this is beyond my understanding. This is too much to handle. And if that's how you feel, friend, you're on the right track. <laughs> you are approaching the holiness of God. And your response is not simply to understand it. It's to respond with reverence and awe. Awe is the response that you and I have when we think about these things. Look at verse 24. It reminds us that Jesus 
is the mediator of a new covenant. Of course, the, co the old covenant was what was given on Mount Sinai. If you're in a relationship with God, obey these Ten Commandments. If not, you're going to get smoked. But Jesus has come with a new covenant where he shed his blood. And when Jesus gave his life on, a on the cross, he took the punishment that all of our sins deserved. And so if you're new to Christianity or just exploring it this morning, that's the great news of Christianity. Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserve. I don't deserve to go to Zion. I don't deserve to join in the innumerable angel festal gatherings. I don't deserve to go to heaven. But Jesus died for me. And I am his treasured possession, and he will take me to himself. That's the hope of Christianity. Yes, God is just, but he's also loving and forgiving. And for all those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you can live with him forever. You can be a part of Zion, no matter who you are. It's open for everybody. That's the new covenant. That's the new promise that Jesus makes with those who believe in him. You know, this last phrase here, again, it's so poetic, but he says, Jesus' blood speaks a better word. That is, has a better thing to remind us of than the blood of Abel. Right? Abel, of course, was the brother of Cain. Cain and Abel are brothers. Cain kills his brother, Abel. And what he wants us to be, I think, having in mind is Abel was a great man. He died for his faith. But also, it's a reminder that the world you and I live in is very broken. The world that you and I live in is gritty, as Nate reminded us just a few minutes ago. The world you and I dwell in right now is in need of salvation. It's a world stained with blood, you might say. And what's the hope you're going to have for yourself or for our country or for our world? It's not going to be more blood spilled. The hope that you and I have is the spilled blood of Jesus which doesn't cry out for vengeance, it cries out for forgiveness. That's the better word that Jesus' spilled blood has than the blood of all the righteous who have died. So how do we respond to this? This heavy message, right? These two mountains, these stories that should be reorienting all of our lives. God in his holiness, and yet I have access to this God by faith in Jesus, and he wants me. How do you and I respond? Well, that's really the last few verses of this passage. And he's going to tell you and I how to respond. Look at verse 25. He says what? See then, okay, here's the application. See then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit is speaking right now through these words. So stop rejecting God. <laughs> Don't refuse Jesus. Don't refuse the Spirit. And his point is, for if they did not escape, that's in the Old Testament. Think about Mount Sinai. If they didn't escape when they refused to listen to God, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who is warning us from heaven? Right? Uh, what's amazing about this is you might think, okay, God's all like angry and he's all about fire and gloom and darkness in the Old Testament. But thank goodness he's like super cool and chill now in the New Testament in Jesus. But you notice that's not how he tells us to see these stories. The point is not that these are so totally different aspects of God's character. The point is these are both the same God. And his point is these people were called to respond with reverence and awe at Mount Sinai. How much more, Christian, should you and I listen 
to the Holy Spirit, warning us not from a mountain, but from heaven itself. It's not a throwing away of reverence and awe. It's actually a doubling down on the reverence and awe that you and I are called to have. Listen to the verse again. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Notice, Christian, it's a doubling down on experiencing God with reverence and awe. He goes on, look at verse 26, and this, this is going to get kind of complicated, but don't, don't let it trip you. All he's really saying is God's going to come again to judge the world. Look at verse 26. He says, at that time, that's at Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. Think about the mountain, right? Shaking, right? So he says, okay, at Mount Sinai, he shook the earth. But later on in the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, God promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Okay, that's a very <laughs> Hebrews way, a very author of Hebrews way of making it a little bit more poetic and complicated. All he's saying is he's saying, God shook the earth at Mount Sinai. And later on, God said that one day, my full expression of my aspect of being a consuming fire and judging my adversaries. One day God will return in righteousness. And the things that are shakable, the things that are passing, the things that are temporary, they're all going to go away. And one day when Jesus Christ returns and he judges the world in righteousness, and you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things that you and I have done in the body, whether good or ill, on that day, this world and all the things around it will pass away. And the only thing that will remain is the kingdom of God. So the author is asking you, are you ready for the day of Christ's return? Are you ready for the Yom Yahweh, as the Hebrews called it, the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord's return, when God finally reveals himself, as the judge of all. If that makes you uncomfortable, just remember this. You weren't begging me to stop. <laughs> I didn't play a trumpet, right? The people of Mount Sinai got this message so clear to their core. And the author of Hebrews wants that same sense of serious awe to burrow its way inside all of our hearts. He then gives us an application about how to respond. If we are Christians, and if you are one, how do you and I respond to this? Look at verse 28. Therefore, don't, I love it. I love it when the Bible says therefore. Because I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this passage? Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do with it. Therefore, you should underline that word. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, friends, I have great news for you. I have great news for you. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Kingdoms rise and they fall. Nations come and nations go. Such is the way of life, right? But there is one kingdom that will not pass. 
There is a stone that will topple all of the nations of man. And it's the kingdom of God. So if you're tying your peace and your comfort to the future of a nation or the prospects of your personal life, friends, everything in this world is passing away. Don't tie your boat to something that can go adrift. Don't build your life on sinking sand. Build your life on the rock. Build your life on the kingdom that cannot be shaken. I am so glad that no matter what happens in my life or in my kid's life, there is a kingdom and there is a nation and there is a city that will never fall, that will never be taken over. In fact, all of the other nations will be taken over by it one day. The earth will pass away, but God's kingdom remains forever. And friend, if you believe that, you can live a life of gratitude. Thank God. Thank God. The kingdom of God cannot be shaken. He gives us another and final application. It's really in the last half of verse 28. Friend, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Praise God. Therefore, let us do what? Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Uh, recently, you know, on the internet, people got all worked up about this verse, famously talking about whether or not churches should have coffee during the worship service because was that acceptable worship or not? And I'm like, I'll, whatever it takes for my people to pay attention. I'm down for that. Down for that. That's why we don't give you cookies before the service, so you don't have your sugar crash. That's why we give you coffee before the sermon, so you pay attention. Um, I do think there is a sense that we need to think about what our services are like, our Sunday services are like. And there is a sense that you and I need to think about what it means to have acceptable worship. But to reduce this down to just something like, should we have coffee at church? I don't think that's really the full breadth of what this passage is talking about. I think what it's talking about is that little organ right behind your rib cage. Do you revere God as holy? Do you revere him as holy? Do you know that our God is a consuming fire? If you do, you understand this passage. But if you're casual or if you're tempted to drift away, friend, beware. You've been warned, not by me, but from the Holy Spirit who's warning you now from heaven. Repent. Trust in Christ. Uh, friends, um, in closing, I thought it would be helpful to just close in prayer that this passage would work its way, not just in our hearts, but in our church as well. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come before you, we know your holiness, and Lord, we want to know it more. Lord, we revere you, and we stand in awe of you. And yet, Lord, our thoughts of you have still been too small and too few. Lord, we want to see your all, your beauty more and more. 
Uh, Lord, would you expand our hearts that we would see your holiness? Father, we are grateful. Lord, we are so grateful that we have received not a kingdom that can be shaken, but a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Lord, as we see things uh, in our world that are so upsetting, Lord, as we see the past being rewritten, Father, we praise you that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Father, as we think about your holiness, we also praise you that you are tender, that you are merciful, and that you are love. And so, Father, would both of those things be true, and would both of those stories of those mountains shape us? Lord, would we see you on Mount Sinai, and Lord, would we see you in Mount Zion, rejoicing over your people? Father, we ask for our church now, and Lord, for all the churches in the valley, Lord, that we would give you acceptable worship, that our hearts behind our ribcages would be moved towards you. Lord, that when you warn us, that we would heed it, that when you call us to new life, that we would chase after it. Lord, that you would give us an eagerness to our faith, a willingness to speak the name of Jesus, a desire to share the gospel with our friends. Lord, would we see you as a consuming fire? And Lord, at the same time, would you remove fear by your perfect love? Father, we pray for those who are sick, who are unable to join us for worship. Oh Lord, those who are going through the dark night of the soul. And Lord, we commend them to your holy mercy. Lord, we pray for Ella Klimko, Sean McCoy, Georgine Van Orso, Paul Deller, Mary McClure, Sylvia Gardner, and Jim Saltz. And Lord, this month we continue to pray for U715 Ministries. Lord, would you use that ministry to share the good news of Jesus Christ to teenagers all over our community. And Lord, would those teenagers be gripped by who you truly are. And Lord, would everything about their lives and their stories be reoriented, not by the lies that they have been told, but by the truth of the gospel. Lord, we ask that for them and ourselves as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.